Our scripture today is from Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Apollo 13 Commander Jim Lovell has more time and space, almost 24 days already, than any other man. And I asked him recently if he ever was scared. Oh, well, I've had an engine flame out a few times at an aircraft and was kind of curious as to whether it was going to light up again, things of that nature. But uh, uh, they, they seem to work out. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall fear? Uh, well, I tell you, I remember this one time I'm a... Uh, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. Uh, it was a Shangri-La when we were in the Sea of Japan, and my, my radar had jammed, and my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency, and so it was, it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean, so uh, I flip on my map light, and then suddenly, zap, everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone, and I can't even tell now what my altitude is. Uh, I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about, uh, about ditching in the ocean, and I, I look down there, and then in, in the darkness, there's this, uh, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae, right? It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was, it was, it was just leading me home. Now, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that. So uh, you, uh, you never know what, what events are going to transpire to get you home. Are going to transpire to get you home. We are in the last week of a series called Better Together. And uh, we have been looking at how we is better than me. And so uh, it's based off a book by Rusty George. And the first week, we actually started with a video by Rusty. And he said, you know, the way to figure you out is through other people. We said, we is the way to me. And then the second week, Paul Martin came up here. And we talked about a little, for a little bit, the fact that people are crazy. We have people that are nuts around us, and yet we need to see them like Jesus saw them. That's part of being better together. Community is not found in being the same. That's not what God has called us to. He's called us to be together. And week three, we talked about we can know God better when we pursue him together. And last week, we talked about we can overcome our weaknesses better together, if we confess to others that uh, we've hurt, that we've hurt them, and if we invite other people to, into our struggles and, and our battles so that they can help us and we can help them, then we progress better together, and that's what the Envelope Project was all about, so thank you for uh, taking part in that. And today is our final week, and what we're going to talk about today is that we can leave a legacy better when we do it together. We're going to frame it up this way. Life together is the way to life forever. Life together is the way to life forever. Say that with me. Life together is the way to life 
forever. One more time, life together is the way to life forever. There's a guy named Kevin, and Kevin found himself in a hospital room with his good friend Michael and his wife Stephanie, and Michael's dad, Al, was dying. His kidneys were shutting down. And it's just the four of them late at night in a hospital room, and um, he heard them say all of the things that you're supposed to say in those final moments of somebody's life. I love you, Dad. I'm here with you. You won't be abandoned. You won't be left alone. Thank you. Whenever you helped us, you know, you said, that's what dads do, and I just want to thank you for that. And as Kevin experienced that, and then he walked down the hall after that experience when he left the room and headed to the elevator. He thought and he processed about what he had just been through, and he writes this. He says, death changes the conversation. It strips away the cheap social conventions and calls us to either be silent or to speak from the heart. In that room, the only words that seemed appropriate were the kind that are deep and clear and true. Death changes the calculation. Whatever seemed important during life, job or money or house or success, that doesn't matter in those moments. When you're in the final moments, the most important thing, apart from being ready to meet God, is to be surrounded by people who love you. And today, the premise is that better together is more than just a way to cope with today and what we're going through right now. It is that, but it's more than that. It's way more than that because today is just another step in what we're all trying to achieve, which is to get home. And the thing is that God knows exactly what we need to get home, just like the trail of phosphorescent algae that led Jim Lovell home. God gives us help that is timely. It's miraculous because he gives us each other. Being better together will help us get home. And so what I need to remind you of today, and I'm going to use three ways to do it, is that there are people around you that are helping you get home. God has put them there strategically and on purpose, and he's put you in their path strategically and on purpose, and our mission together is to help each other get home. And so, three reminders of who is with us. First, we want to turn to the writer of Hebrews, and we've turned to the writer of Hebrews a couple times in this series because he uses this magical phrase in his letter called, uh, the phrase is, let us. Let us, not like a head of let us, but let us, let us all do these things. And he calls us in this letter to persevere and don't shrink back and hold the confidence we had at first until the end to enter with confidence. Let us make every effort to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And the goal is to hang on to faith, but it's, just, it's more than just day to day. The goal is a lifetime of faithfulness to God and to his body and to the church And he knows that none of us can do that by ourselves. It's not enough to just just determine, you know, it's just Jesus and me and we're going to be okay and that's how I'm going to get through life. That's not enough. It won't work. And so in chapter 11, he highlights a lot of people 
who have been through this journey of faithfulness to God that he's trying to call his readers to. And they had extraordinary faith, the kind of faith that led to actions that inspire us and motivate us. And it's a ripple effect. He starts with Abel and Enoch and Noah, and he goes on to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and he tells a little bit about their story, that they weren't perfect. Uh, They were very imperfect people, and yet they kept faith in God. He recounts Moses's story and Rahab and Gideon and Samson and David and lots of others. And after he's laid all of these examples of faithfulness out before us, the writer will call them in verse one of chapter 12, he will call all of these people who have gone before us in a faithful way, a great cloud of witnesses. And he will say that you and I are surrounded by this cloud of of witnesses. They are cheering us on because we are all in this, all in this journey together of faith. And that leads Rusty George to write this in his book. He said, he says, when you feel alone, remember David, because he was in that list of faithful people. Remember what he said when he was hiding from Saul, I put my trust in you, God. And when you are betrayed, remember Joseph, who languished in prison uh, for a crime he didn't commit. And when you feel like your best days are behind you, remember that old shepherd named Moses, who went on to take down the great Egyptian empire. Sometimes being together is remembering whose family you're in. We are all children in the family of God. We all benefit from his presence. We all benefit from being a part of the same family of believers. There's also a little line in verse 39 of chapter 11 that goes this way. The writer says, these people that I've just listed, they were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what they had been promised. God had planned something better for us, for the readers that he's writing to, and for us who are reading the letter as well, God has planned something better for us so that only together with those people who have gone before, with us, would they be made perfect. What's going on? Well, we can be comforted and encouraged with what we're going through today, but there's more to that here. The writer isn't just encouraging us. He's, he has the audacity to say, we have something better than they had. They never got it. They talked about it. They knew it was coming. They lived their lives so that it would come, but they never saw it. They never experienced it. And the writer says, we have. We have that better thing. And one day we will have it together with those people who never experienced it. What is it? And the something better that we have that one day we will all have together is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better thing. And that's what he's been telling them the whole letter long, that Jesus is the better high priest. Jesus' death is the better sacrifice. And his resurrection is the better way home. And that will complete us all together. One day, the faithful people of God in the past and all of us who trust in the blood of Jesus now and those who will come after us in the future, we will all be completed together at the, at the end of time in the city of God, 
uh, by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So first today, we need to remember who is with us. Remember who is with you, God's faithful in the past. God's faithful across all ages are surrounding you even right now, pointing you to Christ no matter what you're going through. They are cheering you on so that you make it home. Life together is the way to life forever. Second picture is uh, the story of the life of the Apostle John. John is one of the 12 that Jesus chose to follow him. And among these 12 that Jesus chose, there were three that Jesus was especially close to, Peter, James, and John. John is one of those guys Jesus loved John like a kid brother. And in fact, John was probably the youngest of all of the disciples. And John witnessed all the miracles of Jesus. He heard all the teachings. He was involved in all the campfire discussions. He went to church with Jesus for three years. And when Jesus was preparing for the Last Supper, he asked John to go and make the room ready. When he went out to the garden to pray, he asked John to be with him to pray. When he was arrested, John was there. When he, John saw the flogging and he saw the crucifixion, he was witness. He was so close to the action that as he stood by the cross, he was with Jesus's mother. And Jesus looked down from the cross, spoke to John from the cross and said, John, would you take care of my mom? He was that close to Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus lost his, or John lost his best friend, Jesus. And three days later, John hears that Jesus is alive. That's bewildering. And so he and Peter have a race to the tomb, and he looks in, and sure enough, Jesus' body is not there. But they still don't know what that means. But in, the, in a little bit, he actually sees Jesus. They even eat together. They spend weeks together. And he thinks, great, everything, everything's going to be fine now. I got my best friend back. But then Jesus leaves the earth again and ascends into heaven, and John is left with just the message of Jesus. And he spends the rest of his life talking, traveling, teaching, healing, writing, spreading the news that people can find new life in Jesus. And the church grew and grew and grew. And the message is, all you need is Jesus. Make him Lord of your life and salvation can be yours. And at the time that John was doing this and all the other disciples too, the Roman government didn't really care much who met together or who worshiped what, as long as you were able to declare Caesar as Lord There's a problem if you're a Christ follower with that, because Christians who are following Jesus declared Jesus as the King of Kings. He was the Lord. They weren't loyal to Caesar as Lord, but Jesus as Lord. And so it came, this Christianity uh, group came under suspicion just as a ruler named Nero was coming to power in the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Nero, you can Um, echo this with me, he was pretty insane. He killed his own family members. He tried to burn down Rome so that he could rebuild the city in his own honor. And the Roman citizens weren't too happy about that, obviously. And so what he did is he pointed the finger at Christians. He blamed them and he turned everyone against the Christians in the land. And over his reign, Christians died in horrific ways. They were thrown to the lions. They were drawn and quartered. They were even covered in tar and affixed to poles. And they were lit on fire so that Nero could light his parties in his backyard at night. 
He was insane. And Jesus' disciples lost their lives. And John himself is boiled alive. But he is rescued just before he dies. And because he's still alive, he's then exiled to the island of Patmos. It's 40 miles off the coast of Turkey. And that's where he is at the beginning of the book uh, called Revelation. It's the book at the very end of our Bible. And he's beat up and he's tired and he's alone. And he's got to be thinking, what in the world is the plan here, Lord? And I, th- I guess you felt like that too. You try to do the right thing and then all the wrong things start happening. You decide, you know, I'm going to start going to church because that's what I need to do. And life seems to get worse when you make that decision. You say, I'm going to start tithing because that's what God is calling me to do. And then you get unexpected bills coming out of nowhere. And you're, what's the plan, Lord? What's going on here? And that's John. John is exiled. He's alone. He's beaten up. He's broken. And then something happens. And he writes these words. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. There's a little phrase at the very beginning of that that is important. John says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. He's he's alone in exile, but even alone, he's having a church service. He was worshiping in the Spirit. That sounds like a church service to me, but the attendance that day was only one person. But John was still worshiping. And then in the middle of that service, the attendance grows to two people. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus will take John from there on a tour of heaven that will leave us trying to explain it even centuries later. We still can't quite make sense of it. But the first thing that Jesus does before he takes John on that tour is he turns John's attention to the seven churches scattered across Asia Minor. And he says, I want you to write some letters to them. Now, why was it so important that John be shown what was happening in these churches? I mean, isn't the tour of heaven the highlight of the book of Revelation? Or what about just spending some time with Jesus? I mean, he hasn't seen Jesus for decades, and maybe Jesus would want an update about how his mom is doing because John was supposed to take care of his mom. I mean, Jesus doesn't entertain any of those things. The first thing he does is he says, John, I'm going to take you to church. We need to focus our attention on the churches in Asia Minor. And so we easily skip over the first part of Revelation to get to the good stuff, the heaven parts. But maybe, just maybe, maybe the church at the beginning is the good stuff. The important concept Jesus gives him there 
is, yes, John, I am enough, but you need the church too. You are better together. And so as John writes these seven letters to the seven churches, he doesn't focus on his own issues. He focuses on theirs, and he lifts them up in prayer, and he processes their pain. He admonishes them. He challenges them. He even rebukes them. And he loves other believers in the church, and that will cause him to not lose hope because Jesus knows that we need other people to help us get home. And a fascinating thought about this is that John's gospel is probably written by John way after his experience here on the island of Patmos with Jesus, which is way after his experience with Jesus on the earth. And in his old age, he finally writes down a memoir of his time with Jesus. And he's remembering back decades. And when he tells us about the Last Supper, which takes a significant portion of his letter that he writes, he describes himself as the one Jesus loved. He says that I was sitting sitting next to Jesus. I was beside him, the disciple that Jesus loved. And you can understand If he's writing his letter just a few days or a few weeks after he spent three years with Jesus and after Jesus has been crucified and after he lost his best friend, you can understand how he would write, I was the one he loved. But this is 60 probably years later, and he still is able to look back and to say, I'm the one that Jesus Loves. He still feels loved by Jesus. How is that possible? And I think it's because Jesus took him to church. One of the ways that Jesus loves us is by placing other people around us to be his hands and his feet. And one of the ways that he loves other people around you is to put you in their life so that you can love them. And they see Jesus in you and you see Jesus in them. And the way that Jesus led John home was by bringing other believers into the picture. And so we need to remember that. We need to remember who's with us. We need to remember that it's not just the faithful in the past that are with us, but the faithful in the present. God's faithful in the present are with us. The people in this room right here were given for you. You were given for them. He has given us, the people in this room, to help us get home, because life together is the way to life forever. Finally, he took John to church, and then he led him to heaven. And so that seems to be a nice pattern. Let's just finish there. Let's go on to this picture in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 7, after Jesus takes John to church, he gives them him this vision, this amazing, uh, these montages, really, of what heaven is going to be like and what heaven is. And in chapter 7, we get one of the greatest pictures ever, and John writes down what he saw. This is a long verse, but just follow on the screen as I read it. After this, he says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, and who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know, in other words, it was a nice way of saying, why don't you tell me? And he did. He said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes. They have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them, and never again will they hunger, and never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So John sees this great picture. People spanning the ages. And he says, who are all these people around God's throne? And he's given this answer. They are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. And so the question is, what is the great tribulation? And many commentators tell us that the great tribulation is a way of labeling the faithfulness that all Christians have had throughout their journey for Christ over the centuries. And so every Christian, you, me, everybody who's ever followed Christ, will endure suffering and hardship. We will all endure tribulation. And if that's the right way to read it, then this picture of heaven is one where every believer from every time and every age is present around God's throne, having come out of the tribulation of living their lives, every nation, every race, every tribe, every language. Now, add to that this. God exists outside of time and space. He created those things for us. That's for our world, for our existence. His heavenly realm is outside of time and space, outside of those constraints. And so see what's happening here. God gives John a vision that is our future reality that we are not presently a part of because we exist in time and space, but that we are a part of because it's outside of time and space because that's where God and his heavenly realm is. That's a real back to the future kind of conundrum. You you need a DeLorean and Doc to get out of it to kind of understand it. But uh, follow me here. What it means is that before anyone in this room was born, God gives John a vision of heaven, and what he sees is a multitude that no one can number, every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue, clothed in white, standing around God's throne, palm branches in hand, praising God loudly, saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and every piece of that is significant, and I'm going to save that for another sermon. But before you were born, John sees this, and God is outside of time, and so heaven is outside of time and space. And this moment that John sees is outside of time and space. We're still stuck in time and space, past, present, future. What does it mean? It means this. If you are covered today by the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood of Jesus, if you have trusted that salvation belongs to our God because of the Lamb, then right now today, you are a part of God's family. You are a part of that innumerable multitude that John is seeing. You are right now, as John sees it in the first century, a part of that 
nation, tribe, tongue, that mass of people. And what that means is that John saw you and me around the throne of God in his vision. Greater still, he didn't just see you. He saw we. He saw us. And we are there together around God's throne, part of John's vision. I heard a man speak in the last few months. Um, His name was Leonce. And he was referring to this scripture, and he said it this way. He said, in history past, in the first century, John saw the church present. He saw us in the fullness of her future in heaven. I don't know about you. (laughs) That kind of blows my mind. That we can be a part of the church right now, but also a part of John's vision from the first century. And all of that to say, we need to remember who is with us. God's faithful in the future. Our future reality is with us. That's you, and that's the person next to you. And so look around you right now. Every person sitting next to you right now has the same opportunity that you do to be a part of that heavenly picture that John saw. And when we trust Jesus, when we have our robes washed and whitened by the blood of the Lamb, and that's a clear reference to what we need to do in order to accept the blood of Jesus, we need to respond in faith and in baptism to be washed and to be whitened. If that has happened, if you've done that, you've done that, right? If you've done that, then you're a part of this picture in the end. And the person next to you, if they've done that, is a part of this picture that John sees in the end. And that's what will help lead us home. Together, we help each other get home. That's our mission. That's the green algae trail that God has given each of us to help us home. It's our own willingness to help other people get there as well. I love this line. It's from Peter Stropel. He says, legacy is not leaving something for people. It's leaving something in people. Oh, there's a big difference there. And you have the opportunity today and every day to leave eternity in the hearts of those around you by leading them to Jesus and by keeping them there. Life together is the way to life forever. I'm going to call the band up, and I'm going to end this way. That we, often, we often use heaven as a carrot. We kind of say to ourselves, oh, I want to go there. I want to be a part of that picture that John saw. I want to be a part of the throne room of God, and so I will stay the course with my faith. But as Jesus reminded John, and as the author of Hebrews reminded his church, and as we are reminded with this picture of us in heaven, even right now, we don't get there alone. We can't just say, it's me and Jesus. We travel this walk of faith in community, and we are Jesus to others, and they are Jesus to us. We see Jesus in them, they see Jesus in us, and one day, we will all meet him together around his throne, washed and whitened, worshiping, and then we will know more than ever that we are better, say it with me, together. together. Father, we thank you for the people that you have put around us to help us get home. People in the past who are surrounding us, 
saying, you can do this. People right now in this room who are saying, you can do this. And a picture of people that are with us right now, but a picture of what our future will be. All proclaiming that salvation is from God and from the Lamb, from Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for the help you've given us to get home. And may all praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to you, our God, forever and ever. And to the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. And all the people said, amen. I'd like you to stand and uh, want you to ask yourself, what, what about you today? Have you been washed and whitened? That, because that's the only way that you get to be included in the picture that John saw acceptance of what Jesus has done for you has to happen. And the way it happens is through faith and in baptism. And so you can come at any time, and we would love for you to come and talk to us, but as we sing, that would be a great time to come and make sure that we all together are a part of that final picture that John saw. If you need to make a decision, you come. Come.